we talk about the issues that we're facing each and every day. I am your host, Karen Davis-Thompson, and I am excited to have my guest with me today. It's a part of the series that we're doing where we're just talking about race in America with everything that's been happening lately. And so my guest today is an author who has a, a lot that I think she can bring to this discussion. So Dr. D'Angelo, if you could just say hello to the audience really quickly. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Dr. D'Angelo wrote a book in 2018. It was on the bestseller list. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was it 85 weeks it was on the bestseller well, list? Well, um, it's been 90 weeks and it's still there. And oh. as of yesterday, it was number one on Amazon. Wow. I can believe it because I had a few friends on social media who brought the book up. It's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And I've started to actually uh, read the book and just really wanted to get your insight on some things. And so thank you for your time today. Um, and I, like I said, I know why it's number one, because people are definitely talking about it on social media. Yes. And so the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you, as I said, I'm doing a series where we're talking about race in America and definitely some of the horrible things that we're seeing um, that are happening to people of color. And just first, before we get into it in more depth, I just wanted to get your thoughts on how did it make you feel the things that you've been seeing that have been going on? Um, George Floyd or not even where someone is killed, but they're calling the police because I asked you to leash your dog in the park. How have you been feeling about what you've been seeing and what's been going on lately? Well, my heart is so heavy. And to be really honest, it's very difficult for me to look my Black friends in the eye right now. It feels like so inadequate. Anything I could possibly say would be inadequate to the depth of pain and outrage and grief and impotent uh, rage about injustice. Uh, it, it's been difficult. I, 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 I want to be very clear. And I'm white. I can barely touch the depth uh, that, of, of terror, of centuries of unrelenting terror that my people have and continue to perpetrate towards yours. And, and on behalf of my people and myself, I actually want to say to you, Karen, I'm sorry. I, I apologize on behalf of white people. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I think that a lot of what has uh, concerned a lot of us of color, and you can tell me how you feel about this, is it fair to say that in some way it is implicit or you are somehow um, condoning, for lack of a better word, when you know you don't speak up? I guess a lot of us who a lot of people that have uh, friends um, who are white felt like, you know, it's like, I don't hear you saying anything about what's going on. Do you think that that's what it means? Or maybe it's just that they don't know what to say because it, it's, I mean, it's completely, it almost leaves you speechless what's going on right now. That's true. Uh, but even so, I have, I have reached out to my, uh, to my friends who are black and, and just said, you know, just that. Uh, I feel that there's not much I can say, but I want you to know that I'm holding you, that my heart is heavy, that I'm here. Feel free to ignore this email or text or, or phone message. Uh, but if you need to vent at a white person, uh, you know, anything uh, that you might need, I am here to the best of my ability. And, and then that person can take or leave it. But I think to not say anything uh, is problematic. Thank you. I, I would agree with that. I just wanted to get your perspective on it. And just talking about the book that you've written, White Fragility, um, what led you to want to write this book? And I'm sure it was years of research and, and experience, but what led you to think that this was something that you wanted to do? 
Yeah, it, it is the culmination of about 20 years of day in and day out talking uh, directly to other white people primarily uh, about racism. And that's something that very few white people do. We tend to avoid the topic. And, you know, 20 years of that, I definitely felt that I understood the way that we do race, if you will, uh, in a way that I could articulate that to other white people. You know, when I started this work, I was so taken aback at the depth of hostility that uh, and defensiveness and denial and minimization that so many white people respond to the conversation with. Um, but over time, it's just so scripted and predictable. I mean, I, I would imagine as a black woman, you you sometimes, you know, inside are rolling your eyes like, oh, here we go. You know, here, here here's this white script now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I got better and better at explaining uh, what was problematic about it. I, I, am, I am an academic who went from practice to theory, unlike a lot of academics. So I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. I, I grew up poor. Um, you know, I'm late to, to, to college and academia and all of that. But I did get a job doing diversity training. And five years of co-facilitating with people of color mandated workplace training uh when the when that five years was over i was like wow i, I really have something that i can contribute and so i went on to get my phd and now write and teach uh, about this topic Thank you so much for that. And so let's talk a little bit about what you learned about what the hostility was all about. I know you go over it in your book for people who haven't read it. What what did you learn during that time and over the last 20 years about why is it so difficult for white America or for white people to talk about racism? Yeah. And, you know, I really believe that that those people who are listening, who, who are people of color, likely understand all the issues that I write and talk about to a degree that I never will. Right. I mean, I might have coined some language that captures a dynamic, you know, the language of white fragility, but I'm pretty sure you've been dealing with it your entire life. So from a very early age, you've had to navigate this nonsense. Um, <clears throat> and yet as an insider, to whiteness. I do have an angle on it uh, that hopefully is useful to people of color in navigating this. And as an insider, when I call other white people in, it's harder for them to discount it from me. There's a kind of, hey, you know, and I know, come on, y'all, we know that this is what's happening. Um, and, you know, they're a little more receptive to it. So some of the reasons that I think it's so difficult for white people to, to talk about racism, uh, there, there are a few, right? There's not one single reason. The first one is what we have been taught it means to be racist. I, I really don't know that you could have come up with a more effective way to protect the system of racism than reduce it to a very simple formula. Uh, a racist is an individual who consciously doesn't like people based on race and intentionally seeks to hurt them. And if that's my definition of racism, um, I'm going to see myself as completely exempt, right? Because I would never consciously or intentionally hurt anybody based on race. And therefore, you know, really, it's not my problem. There's nothing more required of me. That also sets me up to be highly defensive because it, it really makes being a good person 
a good moral person and complicity with racism mutually exclusive. And so when you give me feedback, perhaps if you do, uh, that something I've said or done is racist or racially problematic, uh, I'm going to hear that as you just said I was an immoral person. You just questioned my very character. So now I'm going to need to defend my character. And I think you, we've you've seen it a thousand times. So that really simplistic uh, misunderstanding of what racism is, is one, is one challenge. Another is the very precious ideology of individualism. You know, white people get to be individuals. I'm, I'm just going to be the teacher. You're going to be the black teacher, right? So I get to move through the world um, experienced as unique and separate from other uh, people in my group. So for many white people, just me saying white people, just me proceeding as if I could know anything about a person just because they're white. That is going to cause great umbrage and defensiveness, right? And, you know, yes, we're, we're all unique, special individuals, and we all have our own stories, but we're also members of a social group. By virtue of our membership in that social group, we could literally have predicted whether you and your mother and me and my mother were going to survive our births. That's how profound it is to be a member of a particular racial group. And so white people have to be willing to grapple with that shared collective experience. And there's just two more threads I want to pull on on that question of why is it so difficult to talk to us? And another one is internalized superiority. You know, it serves us not to talk about racism. Uh, It serves us to silence the discussion and remain in ignorant obliviousness, right? You cannot, and the research is very clear here, that all children who grow up in this culture by three to four understand that it's better to be white. I mean, nobody misses that message. I internalize that message. That is a message of white superiority. At the same time, I'm told that it's bad to believe that. So now I can't admit to it. Now I can't actually allow myself to look at it and examine it and challenge it. And then, you know, there's guilt, you know, all of this, when it comes together, makes white people actually quite irrational on the topic of race. And I'm imagining you've noticed that white people get real irrational real fast when any of this is named, questioned, or challenged. Yes. And of course, that irrationality, I actually, that's what I call white fragility. You know, we're fragile in that you can barely, you know, say anything to us uh, around race and we explode in hurt feelings and defensiveness. But the impact of those explosions are not fragile because they they marshal behind them the weight. I mean, look at Amy Cooper. I mean, falling apart, you know, over, you know, a, a black man having the, you know, audacity to ask her to follow the rules and becoming more and more unraveled. And yet, Behind that is, and I will wield the power of the police. I will risk you right now actually being killed for not, you know, submitting to to my authority, which will always trump yours. So white fragility is not fragile in the sense of its impact. And, And it functions as a kind of bullying. I actually think white fragility is is 
how the average white person polices people of color into not challenging us. And on that note, I'll, I'll ask you a question. How often have you, as a black woman, tried to talk to a white person about their own unaware, but still racist assumptions, and had that go well for you? Um, it's never gone well for me. Okay. <laughs> and I have tried a couple of times, and, and it becomes that I am being um, unreasonable. Yep. Um, or, for example, you know, I said to you before we started taping, one of the things that I've heard uh, said to me over the years, um, or, you know, I, I, I relayed this in another podcast episode, I was uh, at a particular job and I was uh, doing a, a presentation and um, one of my colleagues was sitting there and the person next to her was just so enamored with, well, what, what is, where is she from and where did she go to school? She's so articulate. <laughs> and so when my colleague, who is also Black, made a snarky comment, it was almost like, well, you know, it, she made mention of it, like, well, what, it, uh, you're, you're amazed. Why wasn't that shocking? And she couldn't understand why she would be upset. Or if I say, well, you know, I, I don't know if that's something that you say to everyone, but telling me that I'm articulate isn't a compliment. Yeah. Um, and it, it was not very well re- received. It was almost like, well, what's wrong with you? I'm, I'm saying something nice. Yeah. There's a couple pieces in there. One of course is that white people don't, don't know our history. Uh, we're not educated on this topic and we all have opinions, but they're not informed. And so we lack humility uh, you know, can you imagine how that would have gone if the woman had responded with, oh, my goodness, I, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I, um, can you help me understand? I, I wasn't aware of that. That that whole conversation would have gone differently. Right? The, the nature of an assumption is you don't know you're making it. So if somebody helps you see an assumption you're making, ideally, you would appreciate that. Um, you know, when you answered never, when I asked you how often it had gone well, I've been asking that question uh, for 20 years uh, of people of color. And the number one response I, I get is the one that you gave, never. The number two response is rarely. And so, you know, I would imagine most of the time you don't bother because things tend to get worse, not better. You you get more punishment if you will, right? And then you have to spend all this energy dealing with this woman's upset. And and she, we often manage to turn the table so that now she's the victim and, and the one who gave her the feedback becomes the aggressor. And in that way, that fragility, that inability to even withstand the smallest challenge or opportunity to expand your awareness, um, is just such a powerful form of policing you not to do it, not to bring that to her attention, to just endure that indignity uh, and and carry on. And it's amazing that you, when you put it that way, because that's exactly what, you know, has happened. I just say they don't get it or it's not yep. worth it, you know, as opposed to continuing to say, you know, that's really not a compliment um, you know, I've never had a person of color say to me, you're so articulate, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> so it, it's just explaining why it isn't something that as a person of color, I want to hear. I mean, m- you know, nobody else, we don't talk about that when someone else is speaking. I mean, she was absolutely amazed. It was like, wow, you speak so well, or, and, you know, and I feel like, I don't want to say thank you because it's not, <laughs> it's not a compliment at all. Or I've had, um, 
I've been in restaurants where I've had my children in there when they were younger and I've had white people walk up to me and say, they're so well behaved. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I just don't really know what I'm to do with that. Uh, And so it's just interesting when you bring that up, it is a way of training us to just say, don't even go there because it just leads to, oh my God, I was giving you a compliment and now you're, you know, you're criticizing me. And so I I don't even try, unfortunately, Uh, which is maybe something that I need to work on, but I don't even try any longer. Yeah. Along those lines, I'm curious, Is do you see that as something that we're doing when we talk about what's happening now with um, Ahmaud Avery or with George Floyd? So now there is quite a bit of rioting and looting that's been going on. And of course, we all know that it's not something that we condone. But I have found it interesting that a lot of people, when you're talking about what happened to George Floyd, say, oh, but the looting and the rioting is so terrible. That's not helping at all. Um, is that a form of just trying to deflect what we really need to be talking about? I'm going to say something provocative <laughs> uh, may or may not surprise you. I actually don't believe that most white people really care about racial injustice. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look around the world, right, this, these incidences are not anomalies. Mm-hmm. This is continual and relentless. It's continual and relentless terrorism in different forms. You have the Amy Cooper form, and then you have the literal lack of life, although Amy Cooper certainly risked uh, Mr. Cooper losing his life. Uh, you know, if you show white people, well, I used to say this, and now I have to second, you know, think it through. If if you show white people, you know, Rodney King being beaten, we might be appalled at that super graphic violence, you know, but, you know, as long as that happens out of my sight and I can keep my, the boundaries of my neighborhood and my equity intact, then I don't really care how the police keep those boundaries intact. I don't want to know about it. Now, now social media and videos have brought it right in front of us. So we, we can't deny anymore that this is happening, right? Before we had videos, it was, you know, we just were saying that must not have happened. That doesn't happen to me. Um, so you, it's, it's in some part implicit bias. I think the you're so articulate is a great example of unaware bias, right? Kind of an unaware assumption. But I think what happened with the, with Amy Cooper and certainly with George Floyd, that's open bias. She's very clear um, when she names his race, even before she calls the police and threatens that she's going to do that. You know, she's saying very clearly, I'm going to get you in trouble as a black man. And so I, I don't think that's actually implicit. I think it's explicit. So there's kind of like a continuum of these acts uh, but but they all kind of come together to create a climate. So implicit or not, we have to be willing to to look at it and challenge it. And was it difficult for you or did you have a moment where you had to examine any racism in your own life or, or in, in the way you moved through society? Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I think I had a just a couple things that have been useful to me. One is is growing up in poverty um, from a very early age and being, you know, a proudly identify as a feminist, being a woman. You know, I had thought deeply 
about those forms of oppression across my life. I was in my 30s before I ever considered how I benefited and colluded in somebody else's oppression. But having my own experience gave me something to draw from, not to say it's the same or to compare it, but to say, wow, I know what that feels like when that happens to me. So if this is anything like that, then I don't want to do it. Um, I had some brilliant and patient mentors of color who were willing to hang in there with me and work with me. And I think it's because they saw something. They saw moments like what happened with this woman you mentioned, uh, certainly where I said and did uh, unaware, uh, but, you know, racist things, made racist assumptions. They saw me work to try to understand and do different or better. And I've had so many of my Black friends say to me, we don't expect you to be free of your conditioning. You know, that's just not realistic. And if we're waiting for that, we're going to really be isolated because, you know, that's, again, not realistic. We, we know that if we're in relationship with you, it's going to surface on occasion in the same way that, you know, I'm married to a man. He's a white man. And, you know, every now and then some sexist <laughs> assumption comes through right? He's a product of patriarchy, uh, as am I. So my friends have said, what we're looking for when those moments surface is where can we go with you? And if we can't go there with you, if we can't repair, if you won't repair that with us, then we're not going to trust you. But what builds repair is, or what builds trust is the willingness to grow, learn, and repair those breaches. So I came to it by applying for a job I wasn't qualified for. And let me just add this. Have you ever noticed the mediocrity that white people get away with <laughs> in the workplace? <laughs> you know, here I was completely unqualified, but applied for a job called diversity trainer back in the 90s and thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. That's just about, about being open-minded. And um, that changed my life because I was working side by side with uh, people of color who were challenging the way I saw the world. So I began to be like a fish taken out of water. And then we were going into workplaces that were often 100% white. And the hostility and the resistance and the defensiveness and the denial from white people was incredible. So years and years of that, I just got better at speaking back to it, at, at seeing how it all worked. You know, what, you know, if that is how you're responding, then what framework of meaning are you drawing from? What do you think it means to be racist that you would respond that way? And that, that enabled me to go, oh, it's because we see it like this. All right, now I know what I have to speak to. So, so, so white fragility is written the way that it is because, you know, it's my experience in how you have to walk white people there. You have to kind of, most white people don't even understand socialization. Most white people think they are objective, <laughs> which is not humanly possible. So you have to start with socialization and you kind of have to take them by the hand uh, and walk them step by step until you can finally get to, to the, where we are now, which is all white people internalize a racist worldview. All white people have been shaped by and are and are invested in white supremacy. You couldn't have avoided internalizing that message. It's not about being good or bad. 
it's not even about being guilty about having internalized that message. I didn't choose to be socialized into a white supremacist worldview, but I was. So what I feel is responsible for the outcome of having been socialized into a racist worldview. Uh, I'm responsible for how that manifests in my life today. And it's on me for the rest of my life to continually seek to understand how that racist worldview is manifesting and seek to challenge it. And that is so interesting that you you bring that up. It, it reminds me, I was listening to one of your talks and you were talking about how after years of working in diversity, and I was going to ask you um, how you ended up with that uh, that role, but you kind of cleared that up for me. Uh, but we, you talk about the dock yeah. and then how you have to get below the surface of the dock. And so I just wanted to talk to you about how you've dealt with uh, people who have said like the one that um, really struck out for me and I've heard it before and they're so sincere. I don't see color. I wasn't raised to, to look at color when I look at people or, you know, they start naming the black friends they have or the black people that they know. How do you get someone from that thinking to really understanding, wow, there are some things that I was just, it's kind of innate in me that I need to deal with. How, how do you get them to yeah. get beyond that surface yeah. level? I have a few things going for me in, in my um, objective to get them to see that. One is that I am white and the reality is they're likely to hear it a little more openly from me than they would from you, right? So, you know, using that, that kind of shared insider position, I have a lot of credibility behind my name at this point in my career, and I tend to have a captive audience. <laughs> and, it's, it, and so because of, I, I kind of use all those three things and I overwhelm them with evidence. I make it undeniable. And on some level, I'm, I'm making fun of this evidence that white people give because when you really look at it, it's ridiculous. You know, I call it credentialing, all the ways that white people... Uh, credential themselves as being free of racism. You know, I had a black roommate in college. Uh, I've traveled to Costa Rica. I speak several languages. Uh, In the last year alone, two different white people said to me, oh, I'm not racist. I'm from Boston. I mean, like it's it's ridiculous, (laughs) right? So then you start, this is where that, that kind of thinking, all right, if this is the evidence you're giving me, what do you think it means to be racist? Um, and so I look, I, I literally put that, those claims right up on a slide in front of them. They're, they're looking at the very phrase that they just probably used, you know, when they turned to their neighbor to, to discuss something during a workshop. And there it is. Um, and then I, then I break it down. So, th- so there are kind of two main categories of evidence that white people use. So I don't see color is one, we'll call that the colorblind set. And the other one is the color celebrate set. You know, I know people of color. Um, And I just say, you know, when a white person says to me, uh, I don't see color or I'm colorblind, what I'm thinking is, oh, this person doesn't understand basic socialization. This person doesn't understand culture. Uh, This person is not self-aware. So when I'm standing there saying that to somebody, to their face, if you will, who has just said that, and yet they, you know, they, they're, they're captive audience, they have to listen to that and hold that. 
it tends to get in. Um, and then I, I share something that a black woman who I often co-lead with shared with me. Her name is Erin Trent Johnson. And I share with them that she has told me that when she hears white people say that, what she's thinking is this is a dangerous white person. This is a white person who's going to deny my reality. You know, if, if I refuse to see you as black or pretend that I don't see you as black, I can never, ever hold that you have a different experience than I do. And I certainly am not going to be able to see racism. So I kind of just break it down and show how absurd it is. The colors celebrate um, the proximity stuff. That's also ridiculous. Uh, you know, this idea that uh, racists can't tolerate proximity. Um <laughs> Well, I mean, we could say that the police officers kneeling on George Floyd's neck was tolerating proximity. Um, and so right. they kind Absolutely. of get a little bit unpacked there. They get a little mm -hmm. bit unraveled. Um, and, you know, my goal is to make it much harder for them to get away with that kind of nonsense without some kind of accountability. And when you first released the book, what were some of the reactions that you got to white fragility? Well, um, there's no way you can talk about race in this country without a lot of feedback. <laughs> and I've been getting feedback for 20 years. And in some ways, I think it's the book is as, is as effective as it is because I've gotten, you know, 20 years of feedback um, and particularly from uh, people of color. I mean, I certainly hold more weight to their feedback um, than I do white people. So it ranged from deep gratitude. Uh, people of color have said, thank you. Um, this really helps with the gaslighting. Um, I've always felt this. I've always experienced it, but I didn't have language for it. And everybody told me it wasn't happening. And here you've given the language and you've uh, affirmed that it's happening. Um, certainly white people who have said, oh my God, I see it now. And then I get death threats and hate mail. Um, and sometimes some resentment from, from people of color, which I understand. This is Audre Lorde's, you know, she has that beautiful quote uh, about the master's tools, right? How do you dismantle the master's house when you only mm -hmm. have the master's tools? Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I understand, right? You've been saying this probably most of your life. And then I get up and say it and, you know, it's, it's the second coming. Um, and I get that that there's an unfairness to that. There's, there's a privilege to that. And in some ways, a centering of whiteness in that and to not use this platform and this voice and this credibility that I've been granted in order to challenge racism, that would not be acceptable to me. So I, I try to do it as accountably as I can um, and always ask myself, how do I know? So on that note, I don't call myself a white ally. Um, that, that, that's not for me to label myself. I, I'm the least qualified to determine that. That's for you to decide if in any given moment in your interactions with me, I'm actually behaving in ways that you would consider being an ally. And I'm never going to know that if I don't have authentic relationships across race. Mm -hmm. And what has been, is, is there one reaction in particular that really shocked you once this book was published and, and was out there? 
Um, well, I no, I get a lot of mansplaining, white mansplaining that irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get sometimes some umbrage. I I think that anti-blackness is really the has to be talked about. Um, and for years, I tried to be so careful not to make it black and white because you get a lot of that feedback. You know, what about other groups of color? And you're just making this black and white. And now I feel braver <laughs> about as a white person, I feel clear that I can say it is black and white. Um, that does not mean other groups of color don't experience racism. And, and we have to understand all the ways, all the different ways that different groups experience racism, if we're ever going to challenge all those things. But there really are two poles in this construct called race. And white is one end and black is the, is the other end. And where you are positioned between those two poles is going to determine how you experience your racialization. And the closer you are to that end called black, the more compounded will be the oppression. The darker you are, the more compounded will be the oppression. Anti-blackness even manifests amongst black people, sometimes called colorism. We have to look at that. I think in the white mind, the ultimate racial other is black. We have the most energy about black people. You can manipulate the white populace, as you see right now, by focusing on rioting and using words like thugs in, in capital letters. You can manipulate the white populace by invoking that really core anti-blackness that, that whiteness can't exist without. You know, there's no superiority without inferiority. And in a, in a deep and, and sick and sad way, white people need black people uh, in order to deem ourselves superior. And what do you think, um, you know, is fueling, in my opinion, um, you know, I've, I've always had to deal with some form of racism, obviously, but uh, it, it seems like in the last maybe four to five years or more, maybe a little more, what do you think is fueling what we are seeing now, which just seems to be a, a just surge of anti-blackness and the, you know, the senseless killing of black people, like it, like, you know, like the lives don't matter at all. And, you know, the weaponizing, as they're calling it now, of police um, against people of color. What what do you think is feeding that? In my opinion, and, and I don't know, it, maybe I just am paying more to it just seems to be worse now than it has been in quite a while. I feel like we're back to the pre-civil rights era. Um, I, I do too. <laughs> yeah. So um, Carol Anderson is a brilliant uh, a black scholar. Uh, she wrote White Rage. It won the National Book Award. And, you know, she argues that every inch of black advancement has been met with with a deep, you know, white rage. I think what we're seeing is the, the white backlash to uh, eight years of Obama. Uh, eight years, you know, for lack of a better term, to, to really make a point of that kind of how dare you, that, that uppityness, right? We will not be led. Um, that that the anti-blackness has not ever gone away. You know, there's been um, maybe a lid on it because post-civil rights, it became unacceptable to openly profess your racism, but that didn't mean it wasn't stirring under 
right? That it wasn't, you know, moving on just very, very thinly under the surface for most white people. So you barely scratch on it and it erupts. And Trump gave permission. He is openly, openly white nationalist. And, I, and that was not lost on any white voter. And I think that's why he could get away with such profound and jaw-dropping crudeness and incompetence uh, because he spoke to that deep racial resentment. So, And now he surrounded himself with white nationalists. And he's given permission uh, and he's made it socially uh, acceptable to show your racism. And, you know, you've got other threads like the internet, you know, has allowed the recruitment of young people into the white national, you know, there's, there's lots of other things, but that, that is what I would point to in the immediate. And he is dangerously invoking that, that white resentment right now. I definitely would agree with that. I think that, um, the election of a black president, especially for eight years. I mean, I think there was a lot of, you know, these four years you got this, but we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. And then he was reelected for a lot of uh, people in white America. It was like, I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely would agree with that. And what do you see happening that will be able to turn the tide on what we're seeing now? Do you you think there's going to be a way for us to really get to the bottom of what this is and really, you know, sometimes I'm really ashamed at what we're portraying to the rest of the world, what we're doing right now in the United States. And what do you see needing to happen for, for things to turn around? Yeah. You know, I am very discouraged. I also am aware that as a white person, I really can't let myself succumb to hopelessness as hopelessness. You know, if I give up, that only serves Uh, the status quo and the status quo is racism in this country. It's the norm. It's not an aberration. Um, So it's a really interesting time in that, you know, as we just talked about, it's amplified and accelerated, but we're also having conversations I didn't think we would be able to have. When you have the Democratic candidates on a debate stage talking about reparations, you know, having a legitimate discussion of reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans, that's incredible. I didn't think that would happen. Those, those were such fringe conversations for a long time. When you have a white protesters forming a line and putting their bodies between the police and, and black protesters, uh, when you have uh, books on the bestseller list, not just mine, but Ibram Kendi's and uh, Ijeomo Luo's and um, Brian Stevenson's, uh, and you have in the national dialogue terms like white fragility and the opposite of racism, racist isn't not racist, it's anti-racist. So, so that is also happening. And I don't, I don't believe racism will end in my lifetime, but, uh, you know, until I draw my last breath, I will do my best to continually work against it. Thank you so much. I think that is a a wonderful way to end this interview. I just really appreciate you for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, I've enjoyed reading your book so far. Like I said, I I haven't finished it yet, but I've enjoyed reading it. And um, like I said, I don't know how much you follow social media, but people are really encouraging uh, people of color, white people to really pick up your book and read it. And I think it's a great way for us to have a dialogue 
around what's happening now and what we need to do to fix it. Again, thank you so much for your time today. If there's anything you want us to talk about here on In My Shoes, you can hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, it's kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. That's all the time we have for today. But until next time, be blessed. <music>